I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Todd Deshida. Welcome to Climate Optimus. As a couple concerned citizens, we're on a journey to explore climate solutions and ways each of us can make a difference. Thanks as always for tuning in. Over the next month, we're asking our listeners to help us grow the podcast. So take a moment to give some thought to someone you know who might appreciate the podcast. You know, take their phone from them, go to Spotify or Apple, subscribe for them. No, uh, you know, <laughs> talk to them, tell them about the podcast. And uh, it really does help us grow because, you know, people to people recommendations are, are always the best. And, you know, if for every hundred or so listeners we get, Todd has agreed he'll run a lap around the White House wearing a polar bear suit and holding a sign calling for Biden to take action on climate. So let's keep those recommendations coming in. I don't remember taking that pledge, but I'll do it. <laughs> speaking of, uh, you know, speaking of taking actions, you know, obviously we're not asking anybody to run around the White House in a polar bear suit, but. You know, I think it's it's a good thing to to be thinking about, you know, things that we can do. So what actions do you feel like you've taken, uh, you know, in the last week to help address climate change? Last week? Well, I I did email both my senators again. I'm sure they're nice. happy to hear from me probably the third time in the last month. Um, Those people over there are like, oh, it's just Jason guy again. <laughs> But, you know, they do hear you because you end up usually getting an email or a, or a letter in the mail acknowledging that climate change is a problem and they're trying to do their best to solve it. So so that's gratifying to be heard. How, uh, I, how about you? I can see that those senators, they're going to have a bill in Congress one of these days called the, the Jason Please Leave Me Alone Climate Act. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and you'll know that you've, you've done your job. I would be um, honored. Yeah. You know, I've been trying to do this is you know these are kind of minor things but i've been i've been trying to do a better job of taking public transit as much as i can also i've been volunteering some time to an effort we have here at the city of portland of uh, there's uh, some city of portland employees have have created a an organization called peace and we're we're basically trying to influence you know climate policy for the city and basically try to help city leaders get uh, climate policy going and make sure that you know we're doing the things we need to do as a city to kind of live up to to our word. So yeah, that's, that's what I've been doing. Well, those are both important things. Public transit's always a good thing. Hopefully, you're not scaring the other people in the light rail too much. But um. <laughs> well, you know, another thing I've been trying to do is I need to get back on the old bicycle. You know, it's just it's better for everybody. It's better for the environment. It's better for me, my health, and anybody that has to encounter me in a button-up shirt. <laughs> <laughs> well, with, on that note, uh, let's let's pivot to this week's reason for hope, which is the massive increase that we're seeing in the price of fertilizer globally. Now, it's fair to ask, why is higher price fertilizer a good thing for the climate, given that it makes life hard for farmers and drives up the cost of food? The reality is... The majority of our fertilizer that's produced globally is done so with a process that's very carbon intensive. And in addition to that, in many places in the world, fertilizer is overapplied, and that leads to the release of nitrous oxide, a potent greenhouse gas, not to mention polluting our, our waterways. So these higher prices are leading farmers to reduce their fertilizer consumption by being more efficient and precise about how they apply it, 
using cover crops, which help pull in nutrients and reduce the need for fertilizer. And the reality is there's a process that exists today that can produce fertilizer that's carbon neutral. And having conventional fertilizer costs more helps spur additional investment in the equipment needed to make that kind of fertilizer and helps bring costs down. So taken together, all three of these things reduce our need for conventional fertilizer, bring down costs for farmers, and ultimately cut emissions. So Right. So it's kind of it's kind of like a sustainable agriculture kind of outlook. It's it's prompting more uh, farmers to kind of look at uh, their practices from that from that perspective. Totally. And, you know, I think it should be said that there are farmers out there that are already very progressive and, you know, already employing things like cover crops and mm-hmm. making an attempt to be efficient with fertilizer, but there's also many who aren't. And so right. even though this is some near-term pain for agriculture, it could mean some really positive things. And if we can reduce the amount of fertilizer we use and help fertilizer produced from renewable energy take off. Cool. So pivoting into our main topic today, climate communication. At a high level, climate communication is a field that focuses on the causes, impacts, and solutions to climate change. Now, our guest today, Eric Fine, can provide a much more comprehensive explanation than that. Eric is a project manager at the Yale Program on Climate Communication. He supports advocacy organizations with optimizing and innovating their campaigns by leveraging public opinion research and data tools. He also collaborates with groups who are studying public perception in Latin America. Prior to Yale, Eric was an outdoor educator, taking people on expeditions throughout the Americas and Europe. As he watched the glaciers recede in Patagonia, he was inspired to pursue his master's in environmental sciences at Yale, which led him to join the climate program there. Eric, welcome to Climate Optimist. Thanks for having me, Jason. So we'll start you with a a basic question. You know, when it comes to efforts to address climate change, what makes you hopeful? Good question. Before I talk about the efforts themselves, um, here's some of our research on the high level of support for the efforts. Um, So we we see that 80 plus percent of people, um, they support a lot of the the most necessary measures that we need to to take to address climate change, such as supporting tax incentives and rebates for making homes more energy efficient, for solar panels, energy efficient vehicles. So 87% support in the U.S. for all of those. Great news. Yeah, uh, and one of the one of the great things is it's not all all these folks uh, are thinking about climate change when they're supporting those solutions. Uh, a lot of them are are thinking about the economic impacts. A lot of them are thinking about wanting to be energy independent or of somehow providing a better life for their kids. And then we ask one question um, of folks in the U.S. We say, if you could ask a climate expert one question, what would it be? And one of the main questions we get is, what can I do? Sure. The efforts that are happening and the solutions that are out there already, a lot of people aren't aware of them, or they think that there's a lot more barriers to making the solutions happen than there actually are. 
Yeah, 80, 80%, you know, support for anything when you're talking about, you know, climate change is, is a good thing. So, and, you know, whatever it takes to bring folks along, right? Whether that's economic or, or otherwise. I guess on a related note, how how did you get into the, the field of, of climate communication? A roundabout way. I took the same <laughs> path here. When I was growing up in northern Jersey, got into to climbing and then eventually became a mountain guide mostly working with uh, Outward Bound around the U.S. and up in Alaska, throughout Central America. And then starting in 2005, I started working down in in Argentina and Chile in the the Patagonian Andes. And before that, I had always gone to this glacier in Alaska once and would would hear the people say, hey, the glacier used to be right here, and now i got to walk for a few hours to get to it. Some, something's going on. And, and I could see it in their eyes that they, they were definitely impacted by, by the changes they were seeing, but it didn't really hit me because I'd go to that glacier once, and I wasn't seeing the change. But then right. starting in 2005, I went back to the same parts of the same glaciers every year. And just in two, three years, like I started to be able to camp closer to the summit because the glacier was moving uphill or melting uphill. And so that's when I started thinking, huh, I think I need to do something about this. I'm not sure if I can as a mountain guide. So I think I need to get another job. So started Googling things like uh, climate change solutions. And started going, reading books and going to conferences and workshop. There were so many great solutions I couldn't decide. And I started thinking, well, what we really need is to get more of society behind each of these solutions that's so necessary. How do you do that? And eventually was talking to a journalist and he said, you know, there's, there's people, they're, they're studying how people think about climate change. And then they're experimenting with different strategies to see uh, which ones engage which folks to what end? And I said, that sounds cool. I think I'll go back to school and study that. Nice. So for folks who may not be aware of kind of like what climate communication is as a field, can you talk a little bit about what the Yale Climate Communication Program does? Sure. So we study what do people think about climate change and its impacts and solutions what do they understand? What do they misunderstand? And then how does all of that vary across society? And then we experiment with, okay, for a given audience, what kind of communication strategy best engages them? And then we take all of that, uh, what we've learned about audiences, what we've learned about how to communicate with them, and we have a partnership program where we work with nonprofit groups, uh, museums, universities, elected officials, people running for, for office who want to better understand their audiences. Uh, and then a lot of the times we collaborate with them on new research and experiments. So really, you know, in a way, equipping the, the leaders or the, you know, the folks who, are, who have the mic um, to be able to talk about climate change in a way that, that gets folks engaged. That's what we try and do. Yeah, well, and I mean, maybe that's a good lead in because I think each of us have sort of different perceptions maybe of where, you know, America stands when it comes to climate change. Can you talk about kind of sort of the perceptions of Americans and climate change at a high level? Like what are the themes? 
before I talk about the perceptions, I'll talk about the perceptions of the perceptions. Okay. <laughs> because we ask people to guess what other people think. And we're really bad if we haven't seen the research. We, we say, hey, can you give me an estimate? What percentage of people in the United States say that global warming is happening? And people guess that other people, that about half of folks say that global warming is happening. Right now, 76% of people in the United States say global warming is happening. So we're way off when we try and guess at this. So we got 76 that's, that understand global warming is happening. And then only 7% that, are, that say they're sure that global warming is not happening. And then um, only 13% think it's too late to do anything about global warming. So we got most people saying it's happening and most people thinking there is something we can do about it. We, we now have a majority of folks that say that it's mostly human caused, despite there being some misunderstanding about whether or not it's human caused. When we ask people about solutions, like I was mentioning before, there's broad agreement, but not necessarily because of climate change just because they like the solutions for other reasons. So it's key to understand not just if someone supports the solution, but why when you're thinking about what your messaging is to that person and who sure. should be talking to that person to get them better engaged with that solution. Well, and I guess I had a little bit of a spoiler because I spent time on your, on your website, but even for somebody who is engaged in this, I definitely underestimated you know, those numbers. So knowing that there are that many folks who, who get it, agree it's a problem, and that we need to do something, yeah, I mean, that's a really positive thing. People in all walks of life have these misperceptions as well, and there's different implications for different folks. Someone who, who's, who's just on the street thinking they might want to volunteer in a climate change group, um, but thinking that they're all alone and no one else in society uh, is on the same page they're, they're less likely to, to do it because of that. So that's, that's someone on the street. But then you have an elected official. And we have a colleague that went around and, and interviewed senior staffers for members of Congress and, and asked them not just about climate change, but a few controversial topics in, in society and said, what do your constituents think about it? And these staffers were way off as well. Oh, wow. Uh, and, and so if you're trying to figure out your position on a bill in Congress and it's related to climate change and you're way off on what you think your constituents' point of view is, you're going to vote a different way than if you're well-informed by that. Yeah. I mean, you talk about the implications of it and, you know, that's definitely concerning. So I guess, you know, how are you guys... How is the research that you're, you know, able to deliver to, let's say, to elected officials, how's that being received? It gets received in many different ways. I'll just give you an example. So Citizens Climate Lobby, they sit down with members of Congress and, and talk about climate change. Uh, and a lot of them will use our research and say, hey, we're sitting here in, in the third congressional district of, of Connecticut. Now, do you know where, where folks are on climate change in your district? And the members of Congress will have one idea, but then you can show them 
Well, actually, here's, here's a fact sheet or the Yale climate opinion maps. Uh, and a lot of them find that really useful and, and hopeful when they see that the majority of people in their congressional district are worried uh, about, about climate change. Uh, and then to back up, maybe it's someone thinking about running for Congress. Um, we, we've heard from a few of those folks that said, hey, my, um, my team, they said I shouldn't run on climate change, but I saw the Yale Climate Opinion maps and that folks in my congressional district were really worried about climate change. And so, so I ran on that. Now I'm in Congress. Right. Yeah. I, you know, I think there are many people that sort of make that assumption that, well, hey, our legislators, they know what we're thinking and how we're feeling, right? That they're in touch with their constituents. And so it's pretty wild to think that, you know, you can go in and, and show them perspectives on climate change and have this eye-opening experience for them, right? This shift. Well, you mentioned this just earlier, but interested in kind of the broad themes in terms of climate perceptions outside of the, the U.S., right? So back in February of 2021, uh, we partnered with Facebook Data for Good, uh, and we did a, a survey in 31 countries. We also just did a, a newer version of that survey. It just came out of the field. But we saw that people in more developed countries, they say they know more about climate change than people in less developed countries. So three quarters of the folks in Germany say they know a lot or a moderate amount about climate change. But the opposite is true in Nigeria, where three quarters of the people say they, they've heard little or nothing about climate change. In India, half the people say they have heard little or nothing about climate change. So your communication strategies are very different in, in those places where people have hardly heard about it than, than they would be here. 80% of people in the US said that climate change was happening in this survey. Whereas um, across the EU, we had anywhere from 87 to 92% of people uh, saying that climate change was happening. So better understanding. A lot of folks here and in Europe, they say that climate change is happening and it's going to hurt people, but it's mostly going to be in poor communities. Uh, and they, they don't think that's going to affect them. But if you go to some other regions of the world, uh, Latin America, for example, that's where people are the most worried about climate change when we ask them about it. Interesting. So clearly some very valuable, cl clearly it's very valuable for, you know, legislators, you know, policymakers to understand how their constituents are thinking about climate change. You know, for, you know, for all of our listeners, myself included, how should we be, you know, working to integrate climate messaging or how should we be thinking about climate messaging in terms of how, in terms of affecting change, let's say in our, in our own circle, right? So um, what I guess is the value of being a, a better climate communicator? Uh, so it might be a little counterintuitive. If you're listening to a climate change podcast, you're probably the kind of person who knows a good bit, who hears about it a good bit, who talks about it with your friends and family to some extent. But most people, the vast majority of the United States, uh, hear their friends and family talking about this very little and talk about it with their friends and family very little. One of the reasons is because they don't know what other people think. They suppose that they are not concerned, and so they don't want to bring it up. 
And this might happen to the same to, to the person sitting across the Thanksgiving table from us as well. They might be thinking that, hey, Eric doesn't want to talk about this either. Oh, um, right. And so, so we're both sitting there thinking about it, not talking about it, assuming the other person isn't concerned. And then that reinforces uh, the, the idea in both of our heads. We call this the climate spiral of silence. And we know that when you break the spiral of silence and actually start talking to your friends and your family about this, more likely than not, you're going to find someone who's on a similar page as you. When you do, then that spiral of silence actually spirals back in the other direction. And it reinforces for both of you that climate change is happening, that it's human caused, um, that we need to do something uh, about it. The spiral of silence sounds like sort of a scary thing, you know, given that there are so many people that are worried about it. So it it does really, to your point, underscore the need for us to, you know, to, to talk about this stuff. And I, you know, I like your point about, about asking questions, right? I mean, we obviously learn more when we, when we listen than when we talk. So, you know, we hear climate optimists are all about, you know, engagement and getting involved. So wondering if you could speak a little bit to how individual and political engagement, things like, you know, emails, calls, or meetings, let's say with legislators, how do those impact climate policy? You know, I think it's easy to, you know, have this debate about individual actions versus, you know, government or, or business, but interested in what your, your data has to say there. I mean, let, let me first tackle the, the individual versus collective action piece. And there are a lot of things we could do as individuals to work on climate change. And the more you can bring other people along with you, um, on any of those, uh, then then the larger of an impact it will have. And that's getting at the collective piece. We need to change systems in society uh, so, so that it makes it the default and easier to do uh, what will address climate change and reduce our emissions. And so one of the best ways to, to bring that collective action to, to the necessary scale is to engage with politics. And this was not our research. There, there's some colleagues of ours that, that did some research uh, where they were trying to figure out, do we send a thousand emails to our member of Congress? Do we send five? Uh, where, where's the sweet spot? And one of the things that they noticed was that the more effort a contact takes, the more of an impact it will have. So, so yes, getting a, a 500 uh, signatures on a form email is, is something, but they know that not that much effort went into that form email. Uh, but you and a handful of folks showing up at the office of your member of Congress, uh, writing handwritten letters, phoning up and, and talking with them, that that's actually uh, more likely to, to move your member of Congress uh, than some of those other massive but um, less uh, time-intensive strategies. So almost a, a reflection of sort of your level of concern and level of care. If you're you know really concerned, you're more likely to make a an effort to ensure that that message is getting across and that that they can see that on their end. Yes, exactly. So I think I'm you know I've learned enough about climate communication now to be dangerous. Um, 
wondering, given the critical work that Yale Climate Communications is doing, how can we as a community of podcast listeners help you guys in, in your work? First of all, come and sign up for our email list and, and get informed to check out the studies and help spread them. Uh, help If you're a volunteer in a group, help your group understand what public perception is in your area. And then get on uh, Yale Climate Connections as well. And we'll give you stories, one a day, a 90-second story, on local impacts and, and also local solutions to climate change. We have enough people in the United States that are alarmed about climate change that once they are better organized and contacting members of Congress more frequently and more effectively, then we can definitely get the, the collective action that we need to address this. We just need to be better organized to do that. Well, definitely exciting, Eric, to think that you know, really what we need to be doing at this point is talking more to each other and, and connecting those dots because we already have, you know, the people we need that care about this. And it's it's really just a matter of being more organized and, and how we, you know, reach out and, and push for change. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for sharing your knowledge and uh, good luck in the, in the work that you do. Thank you, Jason, for, for having me on and, and also for being part of breaking the spiral of silence by getting this out there more in the world. We do what we can. So Todd, what did you uh, what do you think? Well, I think as as you responded to some of the numbers that Eric mentioned in the podcast, you know, I was also pleasantly surprised that the numbers were, you know, not near as bad as I, I thought they were. You know, I folks might remember our our episode number eighteen. On, on climate disinformation, which this kind of seems closely related to that, right? Where you're trying to figure out what people actually think. And, you know, basically there's a lot of disinformation out there and a lot of propaganda. And, but, you know, the good, the good news is, is as these numbers that Eric and the folks at Yale have kind of shown, maybe, maybe some of that stuff isn't as effective as, as we thought it was, right? You know, I hadn't thought of it that way. I, I do think you know, disinformation is still hugely problematic, both in terms of swaying public opinion and, and that of our legislators. But I think what the data does show, to your point, is that there are people that are starting to see through it. Yeah. Also, I think it puts kind of into stark contrast what people want and what, what they're getting from their rep- representatives in Congress and what their representatives think their constituents want. You know, I I thought that was very interesting, and it makes sense. It's it, and it's also kind of like, well, who are they representing, right? And it gets back right. into Citizens United, and you got to follow the money, and yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely frustrating. And at the same time, hearing Eric talk, it's clear that the only way that dynamic changes is if we engage our legislators and speak up, because remaining silent just allows the status quo to to continue. Yeah, I liked what Eric had to say too about the kind of personal communication that seems to have an impact with representatives, you know, and I need to, I was trying to rack my brain to think about ways of, of communicating differently than, you know, like the, the big petition, you know, kind of idea. Right. And maybe coming up with some, some other ways of legal ways <laughs> of communicating. <laughs> communicate. I'm not, like, 
I don't think anybody should be tying notes to rocks, throwing it through windows or something. I mean, that's pretty personal, but I, you know, I don't think I don't think that's going to work. I don't think it's the kind of personal contact they're they're looking for. But just trying to find ways of of communicating a little differently. But yeah, and as as we'll say later, you know, everybody should go check out the site that Eric's talking about and the work they've done with the opinion maps. And there's just it's great to see that information laid out in a visual way, and it's it's very clear and. But what struck me is how sometimes it seemed like, as Americans as a whole, we were kind of at odds with our own perceptions. You know, there's a question in there, should we drill for oil in the Arctic wildlife refuge? It seemed like a pretty strong 70, almost 70% say no, 30% said, okay, whatever. You know, the next question was, which is similar, should we expand offshore drilling off the U.S. coast? And that was kind of like 50-50. <laughs> right. <laughs> which I'm thinking like, it's got to be the term wildlife refuge makes must make people think, you know, it's protected and there's there's wildlife there. And so absolutely not. You know, you shouldn't be drilling for oil there. But the rest of the ocean was kind of like, ah, <laughs> right. But it, but it was interesting. What about you? What, what did what, what were your thoughts? I think before we, you know, Eric even got into the data, I just it was inspiring to hear his story, right? His journey from seeing the real impacts of climate change, being disturbed by that, and then deciding that, you know, he needed to act on it. And, you know, I mean, it's a great model for all of us. Right. I think the other, you know, when it comes to the data, the thing I think that, you know, was sort of the most powerful for me was the recognition that, you know, those inaccurate perceptions can really hamper progress. You have a, a member of Congress who doesn't understand how their constituents actually feel about climate. And, and then isn't willing to, you know, they might themselves care about addressing climate change, but if there's this disconnect between mm -hmm. reality and perceptions, all of a sudden they're not willing to vote on something or they're not willing to be as vocal about the need to address it. Yeah. I, I thought how he kind of got into this, this business was interesting. You know, I mean, he was kind of in a field where he was kind of an outdoorsman and saw the impacts kind of personally from a personal level and. I just thought it was very interesting and kind of inspiring to anybody that, hey, you know, you can you can get involved in this thing no matter what you're doing or who you are or what you do for a living. You know, you can yeah, you can shift your focus and be a part of the part of the solution. And we we all should and we should all take the time to figure out what's right for us, right? What calls to you? I mean, that's the beauty of it. There are so many different solutions and ways to get involved that there really is there really something, you know, something for everybody. So, you know, I think that's a great segue into our normal question, which is, you know, what can we do? And this week, as, you know, kind of Todd alluded before, we're encouraging everybody to take a few minutes and go to the Yale Climate Communications website. We will have a link to it in our show notes for this episode, but, you know, easy enough to just Google it and take some time to look at the climate perceptions where you live. You know, the beauty of the data is it goes all the way down to even a metro area or a county. And so you can really get a sense of what's going on right around you. And then once you've played around with the data, more importantly, then go talk to your, you know, your friends and family about it. And we'd like to encourage folks as well to send a quick email, you know, a couple lines to your representative and share, share the, a link to the site and use it as an opportunity to, to call for action. The more we can close that gap between knowledge and perception, the more successful we're going to be. Well, I think that's a wrap for this week. Thanks for tuning in. Come back next week for more climate solutions, reasons for hope, 
and ways each of us can make a difference. Climate Optimus is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimist.co. And don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimist Podcast.